Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. adjustment. Thank you for uh, being flexible. And uh, don't worry, our text is a little long, um, but I'm going to try and hone in on three particular verses uh, this morning. And so if you want to follow along, it'd probably be a good thing to pull up that Mark 7 uh, passage on your phone. And uh, also, um, happy Juneteenth. Um, My wife is telling me to use mine. All right. Check, check, check. Very good. I'm going to move that. Sorry, Josh. before I talk about Juneteenth, actually, uh, Anihu, when we came in, she said something about um, today feeling like the early church. You know, kids are in the room. There's a little bit of chaos. We have food. And uh, then we started singing. And then I was like, it really does feel like the early church. And so I love that. And I hope that um, as our church grows, that that would be the case, that we would feel like a family, friends like family um, that gather together. So 
Um, happy Juneteenth Freedom Day. And to me, um, I feel like I feel like Friday was um, the way that our community needed to celebrate Juneteenth um, to to put action into praxis. Um, and we talk about um, it being Freedom Day, and what better way than to join the Youth Justice Network um, coming alongside uh, formerly incarcerated youth. And if we say we're going to be about justice and mercy, then we have to do it. And so thank you for those of you who uh, came out. Um, we're going to keep chasing that partnership down. And the big thing about it is, uh, the thing that I've always loved about working with Lita and the Youth Justice Network is we don't have it all figured out. Um, we're joining them and learning along the way and asking the right questions, learning the right language. And I think that's really key for us is to not come and say, we know how to do this for you, um, but we want to come alongside you and, and learn. And so we worship like this um, as, a, as a means of formation. And then we're sent out of here to really practice what we believe, this gospel message. And so uh, we did that in a big way on Friday. And uh, when I think about Juneteenth um, celebrating something, um, the ending of slavery in America, um, to me it's like we're being reminded that progress has been made, but there's more work to do, and we get to join in it. And so both things are in tandem, and so I think that's something that we can um, celebrate and that we did celebrate well um, on Friday. And so um, thanks for doing that. Uh, let's pray, and then um, we'll uh, hone in. I, I shortened my sermon for today, um, but I also want to say... Um, the noise of kids is not a nuisance, it's a joy. And so whatever distraction you have today, that's, um, that's on you. All right, so, all right, let's pray. Um, God, I, I pray today would bring a big smile to your face. Kids in the room, Juneteenth, Father's Day, all of these things um, you love. You created us in your image, each of us, and... Um, maybe even as we think about Juneteenth, and, and we do, we celebrate today, we have friends that we connect with, um, maybe we would grieve a little bit too, that we haven't always loved our neighbor as ourselves. that our black brothers and sisters have, um, throughout uh, our history as a nation, been treated less than created in your image. And so I pray for healing, I pray for justice. I pray for reconciliation, and I pray that it be rooted in the good news of your gospel, that even when we didn't deserve it, you loved us. And so I, t I pray that you would be helping us as a community understand um, how to have a faithful presence in the midst of a culture of, of division and contention. And as we come into your word today, I pray for a measure of humility um, to seek to understand your heartbeat, what angered you, what... Um, made you smile, what uh, you called out, all of these things, may we be reoriented um, today. And may we be people who follow you and seek the good of our city. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so what do you hear when you hear the word tradition? Like, what are the, some of the things that you think of? And this is, a, this is the rare non-rhetorical uh, question moment of the sermon, so I'm really asking. What do you hear when you hear tradition? Holidays. Holidays, Perfect. What else? What do you think of when you think of tradition? Old ways. What is it? Old ways. Old ways. All right, you're already drawing attention here, you two up front. What else? Tradition. Relics. Say it louder. Relics. Relics. A couple more. Rules. Good. Catholicism. Okay, so you're thinking even broader about something specific. One more. Traditions. 
Patriarchy. Patriarchy. What was the one in the back? Heritage and culture. Heritage and culture. Complex word, right? Tradition, right? We've gone from patriarchy to something we're drawn into that we enjoy. Maybe a word that came to mind is like stifling or repulsive. I texted a few people this week and um, they were each afraid almost to just answer the question directly. It was like they had to draw the nuances of the idea of tradition. I didn't grow up in a house with a lot of traditions. We did some Easter egg hunts um, around uh, on Christmas. My dad and I, for a couple of years, would jump in the pool. Um, I grew up in Phoenix, and so it was like basically like winter is like today in Phoenix, and so we were like we're gonna jump in the pool. We just didn't have a lot of traditions, and I've been thinking a lot lately about traditions um, that I've been wanting to create with my own kids. Thinking that I didn't come from a very traditional family, how? How are we going to um, help our kids long for something, to be rooted in something bigger or outside of ourselves? And so my wife started this tradition uh, a couple of years ago. You're more than welcome to steal this if you'd like. But every year on our birthdays, we celebrate our birthdays by going to dinner. Hear me carefully. We go to dinner on the street in Manhattan of the year of your birthday. The street in Manhattan of the year of your birthday. And so Rose just turned three. Uh, we went to Third Street. There's this Italian spot. It's money. It's called Vicks. Uh, highly recommend. But I know some of you are like coming into your midtown years. All right. <laughs> and so it might be a deep dive. You might need to go closer to the water to find something like authentic. But tradition, right? Rooted in something outside of ourselves, Right. I think this is something um, specifically our generation is really longing for. How do I feel, even though I'm an individual, right? How do I feel connected to something larger? Like I'm joining in on something, that I'm a, a part of a larger whole, a historic tradition. And simultaneously, we would say, I want to break free from that. I want to break free from the traditional value. And so we do something like this with tradition. This, right? We're saying, give me that. I want it. Go away. I don't want that, right? It's both things. Although Sometimes I describe people's personalities like that too. That's kind of mean, but some people are like that. They're like, come here, go away. Come here, go away. (laughs) So I think that the idea of tradition is um, it's something that we do want to break free from, but it's something that's been used incorrectly, right? People have wielded. Um, tradition in the wrong way, leveraged, partnered with power and leveraged against others. A culture of patriarchy does that. But I think that there's also a desperate desire inside of us um, for meaning and purpose. And so we long for it at the same time. And here's what we're presented with in the passage. It's a sort of reframing of what tradition is and how it's used. And what Jesus is actually saying is that tradition should come up underneath the authority of Scripture. And so if you have the text in front of you, I just want to spend time in verses 6 through 8 here for just a few minutes. It says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And so Jesus is drawing a dichotomy between the tradition of men and the commandments of God. And so I just want to look at this in two parts. The first is the hypocrisy of religion. And then I want to talk about, um, at the end here, I want to talk about the congruence of a Jesus follower. 
a congruence between our head and our mouth. And so that we would be people that do in our hearts, uh, we speak what's in our hearts in an authentic way, whatever that may be. All right. So let's start with the hypocrisy of religion. And it's quite possible that um, when Katie read the text, you thought, oh, we got a new Jesus on our hands, right? Like Jesus is intense in this passage. He's very stern. There's sort of a rebuke going on. And Mark's gospel is actually um, one of the features of Mark's gospel is the emotional life of Jesus. Jesus is, an, is the emotion of God, like in a person. There's this balance there. Like we, we tend to think of Jesus as like a nice Mr. Rogers, you know, that can actually save us or something. But there's actually more to Jesus than that. And what we find here is that religious hypocrisy in particular makes Jesus very angry. It pisses him off. And so what he's doing here in the text is he's responding to people, and this would make me angry too, who are sort of stalking him. They've they've been kind of tracking along, waiting for him to make a mistake. They're stalking him, and um, then they're holding him to the tradition. Not to the scripture, but to what's called the oral law. And so I'll just read verses 1 through 4 here so we get a sense of what's going on. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And in one sense, I'm on the Pharisee side, right? Like, Jesus, make your disciples wash your hands, okay? Like, this is like the, way, the way that it goes. Like, you ever heard of coronavirus, Jesus, right? Like, you, it, you, in, in the city, you go on the train, you do the sanitizer, right? You never eat at a bee. Like, these, this is our way, right? We understand sanitary uh, rules. But look at what happens for the Pharisees. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, and notice that phrase, all the Jews, do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. It's easy to look at the passage and say, this could really be pretty simple. Like, just wash your hands and we don't have to have the argument, right? Like, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a peacekeeper, and so that would be my solution. Like, just guys, go wash your hands and come back. It'll be fine, okay? But this is not what it's about. It's not about a ritual Um, It's not about hygiene. It's about a ritual washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. And so what is the tradition here? And so in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, you read Leviticus, laws, right? There's a a list of laws. And you're never going to find anything about washing of your hands except, I believe it's in Leviticus, the priest, when um, the priest that goes in to make an animal sacrifice, the priest is to wash his hands. That's, That's the limitation. And what the Pharisees came along and said is, Wow, that is a reverent moment. But you know what? These are also reverent moments. And so we should probably wash our hands here. And we should probably wash our hands here. And we should probably wash our hands here. And so what they did is they added laws on top of the laws just so they, just to be cautious, right? Just to be careful that we don't break the other ones. Uh, There's an early historian, uh, Josephus. He wrote a work called Antiquities. And he says the Pharisees had delivered to the people a great many observances which are not written in the law of Moses. And so they're just adding rules on top of rules on top of rules. And Jesus is coming along and saying, you guys are just making stuff up at this point. Like this is, this is, this is not even, this is not what the text even says. And then Mark says, all the Jews wash their hands. And what is he saying? He's saying, if you don't wash your hands, not only are you like defiling the moment, um, the meal, whatever it may be, but you're actually anti-Jewish. Right? All the Jews do it. Why aren't your disciples doing this, Jesus? And what they're actually saying is, is we know how to worship. We know how to approach God. We get clean and we come to God 
and he meets us there, right? That's religion at its finest. How do you meet God? Follow the rules. Make sure you do all the observances. Pray a lot. Read your Bible. Have your quiet time. God will meet you there. And then God will be proud of you and happy. Religion at its finest. Make yourself presentable to God so he loves and accepts you. Isn't this sort of the default for us? I know, I know, I know. It's you know, you're bridging gaps pretty big, um, pretty quick here. But isn't that sort of our default? Like, how do I feel about how close I am to God? And here's what Jesus calls them: hypocrites. I don't know if you remember. Um, we've been going through Mark's gospel for a while, and chapter two and three, Mark, um, Jesus has already had run-ins with the Pharisees. There's this uh, story in chapter three in the beginning. Um, Jesus goes into a synagogue on a Sabbath. A man's hand is withering, and um, Jesus is about to heal the man with the withered hand. And in chapter, I mean, chapter 3, it says this. Jesus asks, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And it says they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of hearts, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretches out his hand, and his hand is restored. In verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might kill him. This is the hypocrisy of religion at its finest. You don't wash your hand. Your disciples don't wash their hands when they eat. Let's kill Jesus. You know, it's like, which one is worse, right? Not washing hands or plotting to murder someone. And it completely misses the intent of the law. And so Jesus looks at them and says... You do one thing and you say another. You're a hypocrite. And the word, um, the word in the Greek is really uh, fascinating. The word hypocrite in the Greek is like a performer um, acting under a mask. There wasn't a lot of makeup in this time, and so theater was predominantly done with masks. And he's saying you present one way, but underneath there's something else going on. You're presenting yourself as something or someone you are not. I was recently uh, reading an article about Daniel Day-Lewis and method acting. Um, and method acting is where an actor you know, attempts to take on the role they're playing um, on screen you know, all the time. And uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is a huge proponent of this. Um, on the set of Lincoln, he made the crew call him Mr. President. And then um, they were saying uh, when they filmed Gangs of New York, uh, he wanted to embody the tough character that he was, so he wore no jacket. And he ended up getting pneumonia and having to be hospitalized. And so he was like, I'm going to take on the role of this person. And the craziest one was in the, um, the film, The Last of the Mohicans. I was like, I did see that as a kid. I didn't know that was Daniel Day-Lewis. But he learned how to survive in the forest. Like he went out into the forest. He learned how to trap and skin animals, make fires, and he would fire a gun. And they said that he would just put this gun on him at all times and just walk around. And it, this was the conclusion um, from one article that I read. He confessed that during the filming, he actually began to experience hallucinations and claustrophobia when he came back into the city because he had taken on the role in the forest so much. And I was like, that's it. Pretending to be someone you're not creates a divisiveness in your soul, right? When your heart and your mouth can't meet, when they don't say the same things, you feel it within you. You feel it within your soul. It brought a sort of fracturing to your soul. And this is what infuriates Jesus. This is what infuriates Jesus. This is this, this type of hypocrisy. He goes on to say, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so all that goes to say this morning, here's God's desire for us. 
God's desire for us is to live a life of authenticity, to be a singular person in our heart and our heads with our mouth. And, and for some of us today, what that, that could actually mean to our benefit is how do we begin to acknowledge our own hypocrisy and to be who we are? And here's what this passage is ultimately about. It's, it's helping us understand the religious spirit between the, and, and the gospel. Religion essentially says, go get your act together, fix yourself, and then come to God. Right? We, we say this all the time um, here at Reunion. The default mode of the human heart is self-sufficiency. The default mode of the heart is self-sufficiency. Like you are in New York City. You are making it. You're figuring out how to pay your rent. Like you're going after it. The default mode of your heart is like, I have to figure this out on my own. Uh, Martin Luther said that um, the human heart is, um, is hardwired for works righteousness, meaning that we believe what we do determine how God feels about us. That's such a fickle place to be, right? When we say, I got this. I don't need any help. I pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Like that's, that's the spirit of religion in the day, and it just seeps into our hearts. Um, a couple of years ago, it was, um, I, I appreciated the name, though it's a little bit complex. Um, has anybody ever, uh, read about moralistic therapeutic deism? Like this was like the term going around maybe 10 years ago, moralistic therapeutic deism. And it's essentially this. God does exist, and he created the world, and he kind of watches over human life. And the next, God wants us to be good and nice, right? God just wants us to be good and nice. Three, the goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. And this is our default religion, right? The goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Uh, last two, God is not really involved in our lives except, except when he's needed to solve a problem of ours, right? That's when we pray, right? It's like, God, I need your help here, okay? And then lastly, good people go to heaven when they die. This is, if we're not reading the scriptures, trying to understand what Jesus taught, this is going to be our default. Moralistic, right? I need a, I need a morality. Therapeutic, it's got to feel good. Deism, God is kind of there, right? God is kind of in the presence. Isn't that generally how we sort of evaluate our spiritual journey? How am I doing today? How am I feeling? How have I behaved? What have I accomplished at work? And then it's like, wow, I think... I think God is actually pretty pleased with me. You know, I, th I think I'm kind of heading in the right direction. And so I think the, the way that we think about um, our spiritual lives is we think about um, submitting to a process of following Jesus, knowing that it's a journey, maybe for some of us today, that would actually be really free. Like maybe today you actually need to be reminded that you are a hypocrite. Like, I'm here to tell you that today. This is a joy of mine, okay? <laughs> You're here because you are a hypocrite. You are not here to just be encouraged and sent out of here. You are here to be reminded that God loves you despite your shortcomings. Like, God knows those things about you. Hypocrisy is quite a funny thing in the sense that we believe in a God who knows all things, right? It's a little bit ironic. He knows the dark side of you. He knows the underside of the mask. And he knows the mask side of you. He knows which one is really you. And instead, I think that we're so externally focused. We're thinking about all the freedoms that we have. But we're still desperate for this sense of meaning. And so I want to I take a turn here. And we'll wrap up pretty quick here. But here's my application for today. 
And for, for you to just not only believe this in your head, but for it to seep down into your heart. God's desire for you is congruence in your soul, in your very being. If you take all of who you are as a person, God's desire for you is congruence. For these two things to match, head, heart, head, mouth, whatever, like whatever dichotomy you want to create, God's desire is congruence. Verse 6, this people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. Jesus is saying exactly what he wants. He wants a congruence between these two things. And so how should we approach God? How should we live our spiritual life? How should we come to church? And the answer is with congruence. Um, we were in the office this week and I was asking our, our staff. I said, what's, what's the opposite of hypocrisy? Is it integrity? Honesty? It's like, I, I think it's, it's just simply a congruence. Like it's a wholeness. And that's what we're desperately seeking, right? We're desperately seeking, how do I feel whole as a person in a world that feels so chaotic? And the invitation is to take the mask off. Not just lip service, but a heart that's close to God to come authentically. There's a great parable that Jesus tells. He really spends a lot of time um, in the New Testament throwing the, uh, the Pharisees under the bus. But he tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And I just want to read this to you. It says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. But the tax collector standing far off, he would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You can't keep up the righteousness. You can't wash your hands enough. You can't make yourself clean enough because if you try that, what you'll end up doing is saying, God, do you like me? Am I good enough? Did I do the right things? Did I pray enough? It's like we um, treat God like he's a bank that gives us credit card points. And we come to him and say, am I doing good? And if we do that, guess what we get? We get pride. And if we fail at that, we get angry, Right? You go through a tough season in your career, in a relationship, what happens? You say, why, why did this happen to me? God, I stayed pure. I did the right things. I said the right things. I prayed. I met with my friends. I thought more about other people than myself. Why did this happen to me? God, you, does, you owe me, God, right? See, religion has a way of replacing God with moral effort and self-love. And this is, this is not the truth of the gospel, but it is our default. It is our default, and we just need to be able to call it out. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And Jesus comes along to the Pharisees, and he, simply, uh, he essentially says this. You're missing the heart. You're missing the intent. The intention is that the heart would be near to God. That was the intention of the law, is that the people would be aligned with the very heartbeat of God. This is the story of the Bible front to back, that God desires us to be near him, and he's inviting us to be near him. And you know what I find so ironic about this passage? Um, usually in my preparation, I, I always try to kind of, one, of course, read around the context, but 
um, to actually read like the whole gospel if I have time. And one of the things that I found so ironic about this passage is the, the Pharisees are essentially saying, here's how you get close to God. Um, keep the law, keep the tradition, and keep away from anything that will make you unclean. Well, what has Jesus been doing? He's been hanging around all the unclean stuff, right? And so the Pharisees said you need to wash your hands if you came into contact with sinners and tax collectors and tombs and menstruating women and corpses and lepers. And what has Jesus been doing for seven chapters? That's all he's been doing for seven chapters. He's been hanging around the unclean stuff. But here's the thing. He's not getting dirty. He's making everything clean. He's touching corpses. He's walking into the tombs. And people are being brought back to life. People are being healed from their infectious diseases. He's sharing meals with tax collectors and sinners. And he's not getting dirty. But things around him are becoming clean. What is he showing us? He's showing us this is how you relate to God. This is how you live the spiritual life. You realize that God has come to you. Like that's, that's the journey. That's how you do it. First John 4, 10 says, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How freeing is that today? Like I have no application for you today. Like my, my notes are blank from here. I have no application because there's nothing you can do. Like that's, this is the whole point, right? You can't do it. There's, there's nothing to do today but to rest and believe this good news. Not that you love God. That's great. That's awesome. I'm glad that you do that. You know, I'm glad that you're going to love your neighbor as yourself this week. I hope that you do that. But do it because you've been motivated by the fact that God sent his son and he loves you and he wants to care for you and he desires congruence in your life. Uh, there's a last thing here. This is a passage in um, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, I think it is. And what happens is, is um, the prophet Ezekiel is um, prophesying that the people, um, ha- their hearts have been hardened. And it says in, uh, in the passage, I'm going to butcher the exact thing, um, but it, it says something that they have a heart of stone. A heart of stone. And the prophet says, what do you want me to say to them? And God says, tell them I'm going to give them a new heart. Tell them I'm going to give them a new spirit. I'm going to take away their heart of stone and I'm going to give them a new heart. And I think that helps us encapsulate what we desperately need and desire, right? We've come from tradition, right? We've come from different backgrounds and different traditions. What do we need? We need the congruence. But the pathway to congruence is not just a little tweaking to be nicer, to be better, but we actually need a completely new heart. And the way we get it is we just ask, God, would you renew a steadfast spirit in me? God, would you give me a new heart? And would you help me believe again? And so the bad news today, you're a hypocrite, you're a sinner. I'm here to tell you that today. I'm, I'm, I'm finding joy in that. But the good news is, is that God desires a congruence in your soul, and he longs to give you a new heart. All right, let's pray. So, Father, we're resting in that. We're resting in that, um, the newness that you want to bring, the, the work that you want to do in our hearts. And even as I think about the rest of the passage, the the ways that we fall short, the things that um, we do, the things that we struggle with, sexual morality, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And God, we, um, we repent of these things. We turn from them and we desire to turn back to you, trusting that you will make us new. And Father, may we... Um, 
be reminded as we come to the, the communion table today. Be reminded of your grace, the sacrifice that you made on the cross, um, the giving of your body, the giving of your blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so we rest in that as we prepare to take this meal together today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.